0: Welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is October 22nd, 2023. For purposes of tracking with the Come Follow Me program, we are now at 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Uh, But Erica will tell us what we're really talking about today. (laughs) By By the power of the Zoom webinars assumed by Michael Austin, we are coming to you from Ephraim, Utah, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Michael Austin and Linda Hoffman Kimball, also Dialogue Board members, are with us to handle the technical details, offer a prayer, and participate in the discussion. We are using our webinar format on Zoom, running a live stream on Facebook, and recording the program. Uh, We, as always, we invite people to the Dialogue Gospel Study Program for their own voice. Nobody here today is speaking on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, their present employer, or any other organization unless they declare it. In that sense, I am opening today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation. But if I speak up later, it's my own voice and responsibility. And the same goes for everybody else on this program. In the first issue of the journal, of the Dialogue Journal, Father Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It must me out to relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Gene's vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, all 55 years of archived issues, and all of the digital offerings we produce, including this Gospel study series, free for online users. The And by the way, the search ability for all 55 years of the Dialog Journal is invaluable, and I invite everybody to go check that out. Uh, Subscriptions are important and one of the best ways to support Dialog. However, for the long run, Dialog relies on contributions. Please contribute to help us build the Sustaining Dialog Fund in order to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. You can find out more about all of our offerings at DialogueJournal.com and specifically about the Sustaining Dialogue Fund at GiveToDialogue.com. We are joined today by Erica Munson and Maxine Hanks. This is Erica's lesson, and we are here to support—the rest of us are here to support Kurt. Um, Maxine was part of the lesson and the closing prayer. This— uh, If anybody's been paying attention, this happens to be Maxine's period in the sun. I think I counted six speaking engagements in the last month or so. So I'm going to go with my preferred introduction for Maxine, which is as a longtime friend, counselor, and confidant to everybody on this program, as a matter of fact. A friend of Dialogue and a former teacher for Dialogue Gospel Study, Erica, is with us. Erica Munson is an even longer time friend. I think we count back to college days. We do. Um, you're up a little bit thinking about all those years. It's gotten to be quite a few years, by the way. <laughs> Erica is a writer, educator, and activist. She grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and received a BA in fine arts at Harvard College. She and her husband, Chipley raised their five children all over the Northeast and in Europe. In 2009, she moved her family to Utah and was prompted to learn more about the LDS-LGBTQ experience, co-founding Mormons Building Bridges in 2012. At Mormons Building Bridges, she was involved in public advocacy and community building around queer belonging in the church. In 2020, she left Mormons Building Bridges to focus on ward and stake-based outreach through Emmaus LGBTQ ministry. At Waterford School in Sandy, Utah, Erica is an English teacher, a librarian, and dean. She promotes engagement across differences through her role as the Utah co-chair of Braver Angels, a National Citizens Movement to End Political Polarization. She also is a member of the faith working group of the Utah Suicide Prevention Coalition. Her most recent publication was the essay, Each Choice, in the current issue of Dialogue. Erica believes in the power of community to reconcile high ideals with the realities of difference and the tragedies of human weakness. She serves as an advisor in the Young Women's Program of the Pinehurst Ward in the Sandy East Stake. We're going to open today with a song uh, on a little bit of a lighter note. I believe it will come across that way, The Ball Game by Sister Wynonna Carr. Uh, Linda Kimball will offer an opening prayer. We'll turn the time over to Erica for her lesson. And we'll close with music, working on a building performed by Leslie Jordan and others. And Maxine Hanks will offer the closing prayer. Um, For anyone who's keeping time today, Erica uh, has a firm cutoff at 10 o'clock. So we will be a one-hour lesson today.
1: That was wonderful. Glad to be on Team Jesus with you, Erica. Yeah, for our opening prayer. Our great and loving God, we thank Thee that we are able to be together through this format. We're grateful for the love and friendship and encouragement and care that we share for one another and for our brothers and sisters on this planet. We pray for thy blessing to be with Erica today that she may express the feelings of her heart and of her actual wonderful mind. We pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, Linda. And thank you, Chris, and Dialogue for
2: inviting me to this. It's it's been a really great experience thinking about um Timothy and What I'm focusing on today is our relationships and the dynamic we have in the church with leaders and membership. Um, I'm going to read um, 1 Timothy, let's see, uh, chapters 2 and 3, excerpts from almost all of them actually, Um, because as I read those, I was just... um, I've been through an interesting year with my ward, and um, I feel like this bears sort of deeper investigation. Um, How do we, in our various multi-diverse ways of doing church, how do we interact with our leaders? How do we make progress? How does that affect our own um personal spirituality what are the challenges um what are the opportunities so um I'm gonna read um first Timothy two and three and I Paul always I adore Paul I adore sort of being a witness to his building of the church um but when it gets to let the women be silent i'm always like uh, and totally um thrown off and so i really wanted maxine to come and give us some context for that and so i will read and then maxine can give us some context about i i said maxine can you do paul and women 101 for us in 10 minutes and anyway she of course can do much more than that but i'm really grateful that she be here and do that um and then i'm going to share with you a kind of a case study. Um, oh, I'm also going to, after Maxine speaks, there's an interesting little historical moment about Joseph Smith that I'll share. And then I'll share with you a current sort of case study of a thing I went through in my ward this year and um, with my leaders and my fellow congregants. And then Chris and Linda and Maxine, I can have a discussion about that. Um, and I'll be interested to see, you know, If there are questions in the chat that we might address or whatever. Um, So that's how we're going to go. So 1 Timothy 2, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sign of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjugation. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety." And now, Ryan Timothy 3. And he begins with um, what his qualifications are for bishops and deacons. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of the bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, nor not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, but covetous, covetous, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the Church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to too much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience. And let those also first be proved. Let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they have used the office of deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is Jesus Christ. Let these things I write let these things write I unto thee, hoping to come to unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behavest thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on the world, received unto God, into glory."
3: Okay, can you help us out, Maxine? Sure. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, These are really important passages full of implications and interesting comments. So I'll give a little context first that will lead up to that. And then I'll explain kind of what's happening here when I get to the end of this context. But in light of Jesus' radical teaching that included women as equals and prominent disciples and apostles, when we get to these comments by Paul, uh, supposedly, in Timothy, as well as Corinthians, <clears throat> we find ourselves you know, asking, was Paul changing what Jesus had taught about women? You know, what's going on here? Um, and so there are a couple of issues I want to mention. First of all, women's equality in the Jesus movement and early Christianity for the first 100 and 200 years, the first two centuries, was a private status, not a public one. Uh, it was done within the safety of Jesus's companions and the house churches, where disciples could practice this radical equality that Jesus was preaching, which they were not allowed to do in um, public society of Roman culture. So, radical Christian inclusiveness had and women's equality, as well as the equality of slaves and others. Um, had to be practiced in the private sphere or in private ways. In fact, it was actually in the shift of the church from private to public spheres where women started to lose that equality as time went on. But anyway, um, in Paul's letters, what's interesting is that women are included as equal partners in preaching the ministry, teaching as uh, apostles and preachers, as well as leaders in the house churches. where women are serving as episcopos or overseers, bishops and uh, deacons and teachers and leaders. So there are all kinds of names. Sorry, I don't know what's going on with my throat. throat) There are all kinds of women's names mentioned in Paul's letters um, as leaders. Chloe and Gionia the Apostle, Phoebe the Leader and, and Presider, uh, Julia, uh, Mary, Persis, Triphena, Triphona, Triposa, Rufus's mother, uh, Yodi, Syntike, Nympha, Appia, Claudia, Priscilla. I mean, the list goes on. So it's a curious contradiction. Why are all these women mentioned as important leaders in equal positions with men? And yet we get to these verses, these passages in Timothy that really throw us. But one thing that Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with tensions between church culture and Roman culture. And he has to somehow solve that and deal with that, both the private and the public culture and, and the tension between the two. And he has to deal with this all across communities in the Mediterranean. Um, so just a couple of things I want to mention. Um, he has to deal with class distinctions between men and women. and which are very different between public and private sphere. So, and, and he also has to deal with the the difference between public and private space, how people are treated. So I want to contrast what he's saying here in Tim- Timothy with what he says in Galatians and then 1 Corinthians. Because Galatians is really important. It's the very first, earliest letter of Paul in like 48 CE. And... That's where we get the radical inclusiveness of Jesus's ministry. Um, that's, and and it contradicts Galatians, along with Jesus' preaching, contradicts the old law and Jewish customs and traditions and 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 the older view of women in Hebrew scriptures, which is what we see popping up in Timothy, what Erica read. Um, so I want to just refer to Galatians really quick because it's really important as the foundation for Paul's work with women and, and um, the status of women in the Christian community. It, in Galatians 3, it says, Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and gardened under the, guarded under the law until the faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So that's the foundation for understanding Paul, it's his first letter. And that's the the foundation for understanding how he views women. So let's switch really quickly to 1 Corinthians, again as contrast, and then I'll get to Timothy, where. Paul is, seems he seems to be um, dealing with public versus private space, the the role of women, and again I want to say that Galatians is viewed by scholars as as authentically written by Paul. That is not only Paul's letter; it's his first. So in Corinthians, what we see uh, Paul supposedly saying is in 1 Cor- Corinthians fourteen. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. For you can all prophesy one by one. But women should be silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there's something they want to learn, then let them um, ask their husbands at home, So, my brothers and sisters, strive to prophesy, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, what this is saying, well, first we're asking ourselves, is Paul saying that the church should conform to public law because he's citing the law as the governance here, and why? Did Paul view church in Corinth as a public space where people were welcome, or was it still considered a private space? because women are considered automatically subordinate to to men in the home. So these questions arise, or is he referring to two different types of preaching? Is he referring to a type of preaching done in public versus private? Because what's interesting is the prophetic ecstatic preaching of women was okay, not only in church, but in public. But it was the theological discussions and interpretations in public assemblies that were done by men. So, these are questions that scholars ask as to why this is happening here. Um, Paul also says just one other thing in Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled shames her head. So, why is he saying that? Well, he's alluding to the fact that women are prophets and they do prophesy. So, he's validating that. It's okay to have that authority and leadership role in the churches. Uh, which is traditionally seen as a male role, but women can do it. But he's saying here, appears to be saying, that to be bailed signifies a private space, even in public. So it's a way of somehow doing both, doing private space and and in a public setting. And it signals that publicly, the Christians are still willing to observe the public law in some way. They're not trying to undermine... um, society. And yet there's no evidence that the women prophets in Corinth actually did bail their faces. So these references raise some other interesting questions. And then we get to Timothy, which Erica read, where basically it would seem that Paul is addressing both the tension between public and private space and the class differences between men and women. And because of the way that this passage that Erica read, about how women should dress themselves in moderate clothing and women should learn in silence and full submission. And um, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, and that goes on to citing Genesis. What what could be happening here are a number of things. For starters, um, there's a reference to public behavior that basically in every place, meaning public and private, here's how men should pray, here's how women should pray. So there's a reference to, again, the public versus private differences. But um, it also implies that women were a very active vocal participant. So the writer of Timothy is trying to say to women, don't be so active, don't be so vocal. So it's trying to rein women in from something that apparently they are doing. They are being actively public Actively vocal in the congregation. So it's trying to dissuade their role. Um, And it's urging, very clearly, urging compliance with the public uh, role of women. So, one big problem is that scholars don't think that Paul wrote Timothy. (laughs) In fact, the the three books that scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, think that Paul did not write are 1st and 2nd Timothy, and and also uh, Hebrews and Titus. So Paul likely didn't write this. This is this is a sign of the church or certain church leaders later after Paul trying to add this limitation onto women. Um, and so that's an interesting question. But even and, and the same thing is might be true of Corinthians. What he says in Corinthians about women should keep silence in the churches, even though there are ways to explain that, as I just did. It's seen by scholars that it could have been a later addition to Corinthians, even though Paul did write Corinthians, that that part could have been a later addition as men are worried about the the way that women have voice and authority and equality in the Christian communities as the communities are trying to go more public, that women have to be somehow reconciled to the public status. So one way we can explain this, and, and I'm nearing the end here, is that Paul is not erasing or undoing what Jesus had established and set, which is we, we clearly see in Galatians um, with female equality and their role in ministry and in the movement and in the religion. But the, the, the worst that we can say about Paul, if he actually wrote those, which we don't think he wrote, Timothy, um, is that he's urging a visible compliance. With public secular cultural norms to try to reduce the conflict between the private Christian community and the public, um, so it's a kind of pragmatism more than sexism. But on the other hand, it's, it's likely he didn't write it, and that these are later additions. Uh, one last thing I want to mention really quickly to bring us up to the restoration, the LDS restoration in the 1830s and 40s. What's fascinating to me is that the LDS Restoration recreates that difference or that tension between public and private spheres. Uh, the LDS Church, gives the Restoration gives women an equality and a voice and a participation at that time in 1830s that they aren't finding in the out, outside culture, where LDS women are able they get the vote in the church in Section 26, 18 years ahead of Seneca Falls. They're, they're, they are witnesses. Uh, they do hold offices. They are ordained to offices. Emma Smith is the first woman in the U.S. ordained to a high church office, formally ordained. They are allowed to preach and preside and vote and elect their own officers. So there's this really interesting parallel. And the final parallel I'll mention is that Brigham Young invokes these exact phrases verbatim attributed to Paul in Corinthians and in Timothy when he's trying to reign women back. Into to subordination to men in the early church. So there's really interesting parallels there, but that's all I have for context. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Maxine.
2: Um, so I've been, I just want to um, also bring in a um, restoration kind of interesting example, interesting Part that I I've, I've been reading um, Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman, which I hadn't ever read before. Um, and in he's talking about the the period in eighteen thirty 1830, around eighteen thirty five when um, as he puts when Joseph is realizing that it's not just Zion and the mission field, but there are church centers in lots of places that need leadership. And, um, so this is, this is around 1835 and this is the creation of high councils. And, um, I just want to read a little, a little bit from this. Unfortunately, there isn't anything, um, regarding status of women and women's role in this, but, um, Joseph told the high council in Clay that through them, quote, the will of the Lord might be Known on all important occasions in the building of Zion and establishing truth in the earth. So, this is what's starting to change. Rather, and then this is Bushman, rather than monopolizing inspiration, Joseph spread it widely, always with the proviso that the revelation at one level did not regulate the authority above. And then later he goes on the Acts of the Apostles from the New Testament a history of their activities became the pattern for revelation rather than the visions of Moses on Sinai. At the moment when Joseph's own revelatory powers were at their peak, he divested himself of sole responsibility for revealing the will of God and invested that gift in the councils of the church, making it a charismatic bureaucracy. I think that is a really interesting term, charismatic bureaucracy. So um, I now want to tell you a story about how I ran up against this charismatic bureaucracy and also my fellow um, ward members. And I do this just as a, as an interesting case study. This isn't like poor Erica or terrible Erica or whatever, but I'm just really interested in... Um, getting other people's takes on it and, and using it as like, how do, how do we do this church? How do I do this church? Um, it's interesting. I really left to my own devices. I would be, you know, meditating and reading and going on walks and that would be my spiritual practice. But for some reason, I have this testimony of Zion building and community and for me that's actually the hardest spiritual practice and i do consider it a spiritual practice is like getting along with people um and learning and wrestling and all that stuff so here's the here's the tale um i about a year ago i i i've been thinking a whole lot about um abortion and I wanted to get my thoughts down and figure out how I actually felt about the impending um, Supreme Court decision, which everybody seemed to kind of know was coming. And so I wrote an essay um, that has now ended up in in dialogue called Eve's Choice um, around what I call the sanctity of reproductive agency, where I make the case based on my LDS faith that the decision to bring a child to term is between a woman and God and nobody else, and the state should not intervene in that. Um, I put that essay up on Facebook, um, and now backstory of my ward. Um, We've been in this ward for about 12 years. Um, It's the first ward I'd ever been in living in Utah. My husband and I, we've been in many other places. And um, we moved into this ward and for various reasons, things came together for me to get involved in LGBTQ activism like from the get go. And so people didn't know me. And it was kind of like, who is this woman and what is she doing? But um, I was quite impressed with my bishop. I just went in to tell my bishop, this is what I'm doing. You may see this stuff in the news of pride marches and this and that. And he was he was supportive. Um, in the beginning, people were quietly like, thank you for what you're doing. Um, other people were not talking to me much at all, but I didn't know them. Um, and so as time has gone by, and this is also a very homogenous ward. This is a white middle class, not super duper affluent. Um, white middle class suburban sandy ward. And a lot of folks had been in the ward for many, many years and had come out here and were living in the house they built for their families and so forth. Um, and so uh, and I've been talking, i've I've gone through now three bishops, and with my current bishop, um, I've been saying, you know, we we really need to do more outreach to LGBTq people. We need to talk about belonging more and getting people together, trying to do that on the small scale that um, Mormons, building Bridges was doing on a bigger scale. And so I finally also, right at that time that I was writing that essay, got the bishop to send out an email saying, um, I'd love to talk to anybody about LGBTQ belonging. Let's, let's think about this. Feel free to come and talk to me. So that email goes out. I put this essay on line. Um, and then, then like four days later in Sunday school, I'm called to work in the young women's to be an advisor. And, um, the ward kind of went bananas as it turned out. And there was, um, uh, a group of folks that were emailing the whole ward, except me, emailing the bishop emailing state president that I was apostate and I was a bad influence I could be a dangerous influence on young women um of course not talking to me um and the bishop calls me in and we and he's and he's he's trying to do the right thing. I think he was it's totally unprepared for this. And so the reason I told you that story about the LGBTQ email is that that was also part of people's concern. I think the conservative perhaps majority of the board was just feeling like what in the heck is going on here? Um and so our first meeting was I was I explained where I was I explained that um this you know I talked about the fact that the LDS church's stance and I completely understand if he if he wants to release me I said whatever um but he he didn't do anything and then talks to the stake president and um evidently I was about to be released a week later but my young women's president came to the bishop and said, I would, I really feel stronger that Erica should be in this job. And if you release her, um, it will increase the division in the ward. And um he talked again to the state president. The state president talked to the area authority, and I stayed in. And I've been in for a year. And I have an interesting postscript at the end. But um here are the things. So to Chris and Linda and Maxine, oh, oh, this is like key. Okay. So I'm fretting about this. Um, The bishop is taking particular, um, is particularly concerned about a phrase that says, this puts me at odds with my institutional church. That sounds apostate to him. So, before anything is decided, I go to Maxine for advice. And Maxine said, Is you think about working with your bishop and stake president about the wording of this piece? And I was like, I'm a writer. Every word is so important. You know, I can't change anything for them. But she planted that seed in me. So, in subsequent discussions with them. I was like, okay, what, you know, the state president didn't want my bio to say that I was in the young women's, that I was in the young women's advisor. Um, and so I made concession. I made a concession of saying this, something like this causes me, a, this is a struggle for me instead of this puts me at odds with the institutional church. And I took off that, I took that off from my bio. Um, here are the things that, so Chris and Linda Maxine, here are the things that sort of were really hard for me in this situation. Um, uh, oh, also one um, mom, the mom who was sort of leading the charge on this, and all this I just know from outside sources, never talked to her, she refused to have her daughter in Young Women's. And so this girl did not have her senior year. Um, Participating in young women's in any way, shape, or form. Um, so the sexual politics of this is a concerning. Just and there's nothing new about that. But the 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 bishop, the state president, and the area authority. And do I? And I don't even know the area authority. Who is this man? There's just such lack of transparency. Are talking about me, and that just bugs me to no end. Um, and I'm the lowest on the totem pole. Um, and then the the an LDS word at its worst, which is when there's challenge or conflict, and people don't talk to each other, they go to the hierarchy. and then the hierarchy has to tr- so translate and but he's there are concerns. He won't name names and there are people who don't like you. and, you know, that is so not a Zion society in my world um and it's also squandering the opportunity for like for relationship for me to sit and listen to a sister's concerns which i am happy to do we ne- we did not with this particular sister i never had that opportunity um and then and this is actually what i worried about the most was the chilling effect that this would have on me And I can already, and I've over the year, I've noticed that. Um, Am I not going to um, be as vocal about the things I care about because I feel, I feel some, that that some kind of unspoken deal was made in this. Am I going to do that? Um, and I'm actually really glad about the lag in, um, publishing for dialogue because, so I just put this up for my medium account last June and it's now just up in dialogue. So it's like, yeah, she still thinks that this is, this is, I'm still here people. So I was, I'm actually grateful for that. Um, and haven't heard anything about that. Um, so wise panel. What are your reactions?
0: So I'm gonna jump in to think out loud that because of the setup with 1st and 2nd Timothy, it's it's tempting to think about women speaking. It's tempting to think about politically hot issues, LGBTQ issues or abortion or women's autonomy. And depends on how you talk about it. But I actually think that in our words and stakes, but in our words, the sharpest tension is, and I've just recently been speaking about this, the sharpest tension is over how we teach our teenagers. And we it's it's subtle. It isn't it isn't on the surface, and maybe it has to, maybe it needs to be on the surface or that community conversation that you would like to have I mean I I resonate with that I I would have sat down face to face with with that person who was objecting but I I, I think that I think the I I' I'll just stop there I think I think the tension that is seldom identified is that we are really, in a, in a political sense, in a, you know, political, I mean like Democrat, Republican division in a women's rights. And if you look at how people are growing up now thinking about LGBTQ issues, I think there is a real struggle over whether our teenagers hearing and, and we, should, uh, we should probably surface that. We should probably surface that and talk about it that way. What are we teaching?
2: yeah i I was able to have a discussion with one other mother who was willing to talk to me. and um what came out her her fear was they're so impressionable, and my daughter could be curious about what you're writing, read what you're writing, and be led astray at this young, impressionable age, which is you know, fourteen fifteen. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the classic, like, don't, don't teach them skills for, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a stereotype and I'm simplifying with, but fear of rest, young people, getting young people the opportunity to wrestle.
0: Go ahead. I'm still, I'm still. Every, I'm reminded of a. Years ago. So, in a different century, I was um, working with the Young Women's Program actually in my role in the in award. And the uh, leaders went to the 16 year old young women. I forget what they were called at the time, what kind of class. They but they went to them and gave them a chance to writing anonymous questions. What would you like our lessons to be about? And those questions came back with, um, we want a lesson about abortion. We want a lesson about ordaining women. We want a lesson about um, uh, whether how, how we vote, how we can decide when we get to vote. And um, that young women's leadership just was so scared of those subjects, they went to the bishopric and said, we're going to have these conversations, you have to teach them. And that is to say, yes, they're impressionable, but yes, but they have those very questions. This is a conversation, in my opinion, that they want and need to, and we should be engaged in. And, but to have that conversation, we're going to have to deal with us as adults and our mix of opinions and and uh and i have ideas about how you would teach that lesson but i think it should happen that's me but i think those girls thought it should happen as well let's put it that way
1: i'm remembering uh back in my college days uh spending as a convert to the church uh I came as a freshman to Wellesley, and it was during my freshman year that I had confirmed to me that God wanted me to be in this uh, fold. Uh, The gospel and all that is true, and you have quotes from both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and some of the other people who... um, who, whose names carry weight. So I blissfully went along accepting all things that were true. And I remember at one point I was dating a young man in our ward and he somehow let me know that in the temple, women covenant to obey their husbands. And this And I don't know how I got that many years uh, without recognizing that, but I told him that cannot be true that just, I, I'm sorry. i sorry, uh, I'm what, what? And I was so disturbed by this that I went to one of the women I have always thought of as a mentor, uh, Claudia Bushman, who was the wife of my current bishop at the time. And I said, tell me it ain't sold. And she just she kind of shrugged and said, uh, it is sold. And, and the the what bold what is there's some phrase like the the boulder of truth rolls um, slowly and uh, there are just have there are ways that you just have to negotiate what that's going to mean to you. And I i th- I think I still carry the weight of that disappointment because where what I thought I was getting, And what the reality was was so starkly different. um, It made me, as some other occasions have during the decades, made me say, well, what was God leading me to? And is this the right place for me to be? And I still feel confirmed that, yes, this is where I need to be but I don't use the terminology that a lot of people are more, most comfortable with. In fact, I think the line that gives me the most consolation is from my patriarchal blessing that says, uh, you are of the line of Joseph who was abandoned by his brothers unto the purposes of the Lord. Because I, feel, I have felt over the course of time that I have been abandoned by my brothers and sisters and what I felt was the gospel I was envisioning and that I felt God witnessing to in my life. And so it's always been a very delicate balance uh for me to be holy me. And I guess that I meant that W-H-O-L O L I'm <laughs> as opposed to H O L Y, but maybe they're Pretty similar um, to be hungry and have an appetite for what is real and truthful. And how absolute is that? And how fungible is it? It's uh, how much is it based on context? How how soon after? Um, someone speaking with wisdom and authority does some other group of people come in and arbitrate and legislate and uh, editorialize on the original text i don't know that that problem has vanished if that's part of what the gospel if that's part of what the restoration is i think it's patrick mason's phrase it's an ongoing restoration we're definitely in that. It ain't done cooking. And our job, if we have the stamina for it, is to represent who Christ is in our lives, who Christ is in the context of a church community, and to emphasize love as the premier power and uh driving force of, of why we are a community together. And even though it may not, uh, there may still be so much injury as people are thinking they're doing what they've been told. And so therefore it must be right that, that they exclude themselves from conversations that may expand them. And, uh, it's, it's a challenge it's makes it it calls for spiritual muscularity and i think that's what i've been working on that's plenty for me now yeah i want.
0: not i i i maxine's gonna say something but yeah, yeah. I, but i'm gonna just mention that this whole timothy reading and maxine's talk about it and your explanation uh, your case study, Erica is just it's reminding me that if we're going to deal with culture if we're going to deal with change if we're going to deal with public private I mean I was fourteen years old when the Stonewall riots happened and now I read polls that fourteen year olds teenagers are like in the High eighties, nineties percent in favor of same-sex marriage. I mean, that's how, how the world has changed in my lifetime. And so, what does public and private? I mean, how do you play that in this in that in terms of what you do in public?
3: Yeah,
1: that's a really
3: uh, vital question, Chris. And but you mentioned that because. Erica's story brings up those tensions of public versus private and also the personal, the individual versus the group, the collective. Um, and I want to say something about that. But first, I just want to say to Linda, as well as to Jana Reese, that she's out there. I'm really grateful you both joined the church. You've done a lot for the LDS community, and I'm grateful that we have you. But anyway, this this tension between public and private comes up with Erica's story in a couple of ways because she's wanting to, to, to share her voice in public and dialogue, you know. So she has to go through this tension between the, the private voice in church and how she relates to people at church and then sharing her voice in public and how that's going to affect people in the private space of church. And I was really proud of Erica for the way that she navigated that and tried to work with both, uh, honor both the public and the private and their relationship to each other and then the, the public comes in again with young women. I taught young women's as well in my word, but young people in our church are dealing with public secular issues that have to that have come back into the church. So we need to deal in church and in our discussions with what our young people are dealing with in their public lives, you know, so the public does have to be dealt with at church. And then I also um, love the way that, that Erica navigated and negotiated the relationship between the private individual voice path and the collective, the group. She was honoring both. She was honoring her personal voice, her need to speak and to live out what Paul says in Galatians, you know, the radical inclusiveness of Christianity and the Jesus movement, which we supposedly restored in our church and Erica was was honoring both the her personal voice and agency and conscience as well as her membership in the group her relationship with the group and trying to bridge those those two things and so i think i, I think Erica's story is an excellent example of how these tensions that that early christians were dealing with and paul was dealing with you know how we're dealing with those today I did not pay Maxine to say
2: that just so everybody knows
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> I, was was of of, I was really proud of you and I think I think well your help meant you helped so much you were so supportive well it is it, you know we we deal with those tensions and and we want to be we we want to value both our our individual voice and agency which we need to value the inspiration coming through us and the radical equality for LGBTs and women and everyone, persons of color, you know, in the Christian movement and in this church. And at the same time, we're part of, we're part of the body of Christ. And and we're trying to figure out how to live that out, um, and and honor that, but in a way that again goes back to the balance that that you cited in from Bushman, Joseph Smith was really trying to set up Decision making councils and bodies and authorities that were going to balance each other, that were going to counterbalance each other. That's what he set up. And then a lot of that shifted during the crisis of the succession crisis, the death, the martyrdom, and the move to Utah. But anyway, those are great points. So, right. Can yeah.
0: um, I just say that the, yes. that business? I mean, I, there are a couple of really good comments here, or if you're seeing the America, or I'll bring yeah. them in. But- yeah um that that business of someone not liking what's going on and going to an authority figure rather than to the individual uh, uh, drives me crazy. I mean, I have sort of a flair response to that. It sounds like you managed it remarkably well, but i uh, um that that is a characteristic not just of the mormon community of any any sort of community building i and that i mean i've seen it recently in my neighborhood with it's sort of like neighbors should talk to each other instead of going to because i live in an hoa there's an hoa board so there's someone an authority figure you can go to and make the complaint and try to make it anonymous and it just drives me crazy i it is it is a community sickness i guess and i i'll just put it there they're they're there are two comments here that I that I thought let me rather than read them all, let me capsulize it. One is that we um this public-private distinction that Maxine talked about um also relates to the way uh, uh, the, the way the way it's written here is um this is Christians trying to have their cake and eat it too. And we end up with problems with we're not we're we're against slavery, but we have slaves, and we don't really know what the church rule is when we look back a hundred years later, um, or two hundred years later. Um, that that's an interesting problem when we're being as pragmatic as whoever wrote Timothy. Um, the other is that um, just to highlight that. In the last conference, one of the talks that has gotten a lot of conversation has had a um, line about not learning from or not not paying attention to unbelievers or to those who don't have an orthodox view, which unfortunately would reinforce some of the people, um, some of the phrases you use, Erica. And lastly, Linda's pointing to her. Linda's pointing to her watch and reminding me to watch the time. Okay.
2: <laughs> right. Um, yes, absolutely. The I mean, and this is just a constant tension, his um, feeling. Um, I think for me, Maxine, that radical inclusion includes thought and parsing theology that he Paul was concerned or author Timothy was concerned about women doing in public. Um, and but one what I came away with from this is that I'm I'm I now have a better relationship with my bishop and my state president and that we just know each other better. We just hung out together. And and for instance, in the in the discussion with my state president, my youngest daughter, he was her paw on a trek uh with my youngest daughter and that was the last church thing that she she actually liked it that she liked she thought it was kind of hilarious but she actually liked it but that was the last church thing that she did and then we got a new young women's president who gave her an apron for her birthday and she was out of there um anyway so he always wants to know how she's doing and i was able to say yeah, when she stopped doing young women, she went on, she joined the um the the youth advisory board of our local Planned Parenthood. And he at that he thought Planned Parenthood was like of the devil at that point. And so that just gave him maybe a little more information. And um he came up a couple weeks later in a state conference. He came up to me and said, I'm really glad that was a really good conversation we had. So I now have a, a relationship with him. I have a relationship with my bishop. And I think for other ward members, I wanted to model um this uh tension of loyalty while not backing down. And who knows if I did that or if I did back down too much or whatever. But um it's it's been a really interesting um journey on this and um, the story isn't over but um I lasted a year and I'm calling that a win at the moment. Um so anyway, so uh I want to close with another song, um which is about it's another gospel song called Working on a Building and that's my metaphor for a word for Zion is that we are working on a building together and it really really matters to me. And that's what my testimony is is um I have often said that committing yourself to a faith community full of people who drive you crazy is an excellent spiritual practice. And um so that's that's been part of my life and thank you for letting me share it with you. Um and we'll listen to the music and then Maxine will close for us. And I've got a an image I'd love you to look at while we play the song. It's a painting by J. Kirk Richards and it's called Friends in Church. And um, it's beautiful. So let me share screen and try to find
0: this. Death, Erica, I can either play the song or show the picture. But
2: we can't do oh, the- bummer. Okay. Um, um, you got to play the song. You got to play. All the right. Song.
3: Thank you. Okay, we'll pray. Our most gracious Father and Mother and Most High God, we are so grateful for each other, for the house church that Dialogue Sunday School creates for us, as a place where we can bring our spiritual searching and our voices our integrity and our authentic desires together with our tradition where we can learn and struggle to grow and to find our own way and our own path and our own relationship with Thee and at the same time find ourselves together in the body of Christ. We're so grateful for those who have created and managed, like the bishops and deacons of old, this beautiful house church of Dialogue Sunday School. We're so grateful for each other and the ways in which we inspire and move and instruct and support each other in this journey to find our own path and to find our belonging, true belonging in the body of Christ. We're so grateful for all who have given their lives and their souls and talents to this amazing LDS tradition that we are part of,
1: to enrich it and broaden it and make it truly radically inclusive. Please be present
3: with us and strengthen and sustain us in all of our searching and all of our collaborations. And are ministering to each other that we will have the courage to speak as we are moved, to live as we are inspired, and to love one another radically. We're so grateful for Erica and all of her work on behalf of our community. Please be with her and continue to bless her and be with all of us as we strive to love thee and love all of our brothers and sisters. And we say these things in the name of our radical elder brother, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
2: I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud.
3: My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was... Zucchini. Maybe it
2: isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake.
1: Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you go down the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring
2: you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to DialogueJournal.com.